verse number 1 through 9, and then we'll also turn to Ephesians 4.21. Good to see each and every one of you. I tell you what, I felt almost backslidden by the time Sunday got here. I just like church. Amen. Now, I never worked offshore on a land rig, but I'm going to tell you what. A lot of our men in our church work 14 and 14. If you don't have anything else in your life to pray for, you pray for those men that are gone 14 days without being in church with their family. Now you kind of know what they feel like when they come back. I'm thankful for these men that do that and are still living for God. I applaud them. I applaud them. Amen. The Bible says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet. With twain he did fly, and one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. He laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Ephesians chapter 4, very quickly we'll go to verse number 21 of Ephesians chapter number 4. Bible says, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I want to teach this, this evening on three dimensions of spiritual renewal. Three dimensions of spiritual renewal. Lord bless you as you're being seated. Thank you for standing for a rather lengthy text. The word renew is comprised of a prefix and a root word. Re meaning again and new of course meaning new. Thus the word renew simply means to make new again. This doesn't indicate that you're starting over. It just means that you're refreshing or reviving. Let me give you an example. It's amazing how good a car will look after you wash it. You didn't buy a new car. You just renewed what you already had. You could take a, a pair of clothes that was all stained up 
and you could wash them, and you didn't go buy a new pair. You renewed what you already had. You can take a piece of furniture. In fact, there's past probably five, ten years, the big trend was taking furniture and repainting it, same piece of furniture. i tell you what, what has, I think it was birthed out of the, the bottomless pit for husbands is Pinterest. Everybody ever heard of Pinterest? Don't act like that. You know you've heard of Pinterest. And all it is is all these ideas for husbands to do for their wives, usually found by the wife, not the husband. But it's taking stuff and making it new again. You didn't buy new furniture. You renewed something that you already had. People, uh, usually at their 50-year anniversary, will renew their vows. They're not getting married again. They're just reviving and renewing their commitment towards each other to make, to make new again. If you haven't figured it out yet, we're living in a world that is full of discontentment. People are just discontent. Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. There's something to be said for a, just a spirit of contentment, not lethargy and being stuck in the past, but just being content with what God has blessed you with and appreciating what we already possess. Contentment. It's amazing how fast the new can wear off of something. My, my wife and I have observed, and, and parents, you have observed as well, it can be the greatest Christmas that your children have ever had in their life. And in three months, they haven't touched anything that they got for Christmas. I mean, you can just surround them. And that's probably part of the problem is we surround them too much. And the less you have, the more you appreciate. The more you have, the less you appreciate. But in three months, they're just discontent. They need something. My kids, they have this idea that you're not supposed to pass a bank without going in and getting suckers. They just think that's the sucker factory. You pull in and you get suckers. You got to explain to them. You don't just go to the bank to get suckers. You got to actually do something there. But the new wears off so fast. You're going to start hearing less and less of people being on the same job for 30 and 40 years. That's decreasing, those statistics. Because if somebody finds out somebody's paying 25 cents more over here, they're going to jump over there. It don't matter that the job's horrible. I got 25 cents more an hour. And so that loyalty to the company is gone because they're discontent. Ben Franklin once said, Content, Contentment makes poor men rich. Discontentment makes rich men poor. Because people want instant gratification, once the new wears off, they go another direction. They're discontent. And you ask anybody who's been married any length of time, the honeymoon will wear off. Rough times will come. 
Disagreements will happen. Frustrations will appear. Yet somehow in a healthy relationship, that love is renewed along the way because love has to go deeper than emotion. Has to. If, if everybody exited a relationship as soon as they got discontent with something they didn't like, nobody would stay married. Because it's just the nature of it. Something's going to happen. If you wear glasses, you realize and you understand that the lens through which you view life you keep living, and it starts getting blurry. So what has to happen is you got to go back to the doctor and renew your prescription. And you never realized how bad your vision was until you got it right. And you put on a, a pair of glasses with a, a renewed prescription, and you walk out and you go, wow, I didn't realize how bad my old prescription was. It, it, it is a necessity that you have to renew some things. And if we have to renew things in the physical, then it goes without saying that we have to renew things in the spiritual because they're, they're parallels. Paul said in Ephesians 4, If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The struggle that we all face is that we have encountered truth along the way, and we are striving to live for God, yet we are not exempt from the old man trying to resurrect itself in our life. You, that, that old man, we wrestle between who God wants us to be and who we once were. Our future is wrestling with our past. And as long as you're breathing, that war is going to be going on in the spirit world. And the only way to combat this is to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Now, this is not just talking in tongues. Talking in tongues is a whole lot. When you pray in tongues, the Bible talks about that it renews, it builds up your most holy faith when you pray in tongues. But, you know, you can come to the altar and talk in tongues and never change your mind. You can talk in tongues and still go out and think the same way, act the same way. It's not a, uh, tongues is not a spiritual indicator. It's a spiritual edifier. It's not a gauge whereby we check off our list. Okay, I talked in tongues this week. God, I'm good. No, that's not how that thing works. It means you got to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Remember in the Word of God, the word mind and heart are used interchangeably. Okay? So when we talk about mind, it's also an indicator of your heart. And you have to renew that. If you're, if you're going to be living for God like God wants, wants you to, there's three dimensions that we have to be renewed in in our journey in living for God. The Bible says, in the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. There were six seraphims. Each one had, or each had six wings, two over the face, two over the feet, and two that were used to fly. And they all cried, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. It was a spectacular vision, one that proved to be, no doubt, life-changing. But in this story, in this particular text, there's three dimensions that I want to focus on. The first thing that we have to have is we have to have an upward vision. We have to renew our upward vision. The Bible says in verse 5, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know what happened? The first thing that he was renewed was his vision of the Lord. He had an upward vision. He saw the Lord. And when he saw the Lord, he said, Woe is me. It was a word of confession. In the midst of everything that's going on in our life or in life, Isaiah was able to gain his perspective back at how big God really is. And when we're walking through life, it's easy for us to start seeing how big everything else is. And we can start losing sight of how big God is. When you get your eyes back on Jesus, you realize that God is bigger than all of my problems. He's bigger than all of my trouble. He's bigger than all of my questions. Isaiah had an upward vision. He said, woe is me. He saw the holiness of God. He saw the, the, the beauty of God. David said, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. After everything David saw in life, he didn't say, I want to go kill another giant. He didn't say, I want to defeat another enemy. He said, if I had one thing to do in life, I would focus on how beautiful God is. Once you see the beauty of God, you can't help but realize that God is the answer to all things. It's easy for us to become focused on what's wrong. Instead of seeing what's right. It's easy for us. The Bible says there is a path which no fowl knoweth. And which the vulture's eye hath not seen. The vulture is programmed into his nature. He only looks for what's dead. What's rotten. And what's wrong. There's a path which no fowl knoweth and which the vulture's eye hath not seen. He doesn't focus on the beauty of the landscape around him. He doesn't focus on the beauty of the sunsets or on the beauty of the architecture. He doesn't focus on the beauty of everything in his life. What he focuses on is what's wrong. And we got way too many vultures sitting on church pews that they miss the beauty of God's holiness and they miss the moving of the Spirit because all they see is what's wrong. 
My friend, you go to any church on this continent and you're going to see what's wrong. But I choose to focus on the beauty of what is right. And that is the Lord who is holy and righteous. We've got to get our eyes in an upward vision. When you came to God, you saw the beauty of the Lord at its purest form. When God fills you with the Holy Ghost, you got to see just a touch of what heaven's going to be like. It's so beautiful. And we got to renew that vision. As we live for God, what's going to happen is you'll see personalities that maybe don't get along with you. That's just the reality of people. Regardless of the nomination, that's the reality of people. And you can get so messed up at what you don't like that you miss what God was doing in your life all along. we got to get that vision renewed to where we see God. I see, when I see how big God is, then I see how small I am. Secondly, once we get an upward vision, he said, woe is me. He saw how big God was. Then he saw how small he was. We need an inward vision. We need to be renewed inwardly. He said, verse 7, he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this had touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Woe, he saw the Lord. Lo, he saw himself. Lo is a word of cleansing. Isaiah experienced a cleansing process during this vision. You see, when you see yourself for what you really are, you have no choice but to be humbled. Problem is, we're not seeing ourselves for what we really are. See, because we view ourselves through our strengths, not our weaknesses. Nobody likes to view themselves through their weakness. We like to focus on what we're doing right. That's why if, okay, have you ever seen these personality surveys? Fill out these questions. In this situation, you would react like this. Anybody ever seen those? Okay, if you took the test and then you handed it to four people that are close to you and said, you take this test and answer it about me, there's a pretty good chance how you see yourself will differ from how they see you. Because you see yourself through your strength, but they see you through your weaknesses. We don't like to view ourselves through our weaknesses because that indicates our flaws. We don't want to admit we're flawed. We don't want to admit we've got problems. It's just the nature of it. It's not that you're bad as you're human. But when you see how big God is, the natural response is then you're going to look at yourself and say, whoa, I'm not as, I don't have my act together like I thought I did. I got some areas in my life that, that I could work on. That's why the Bible said, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? What is man? Think about it. There was times you read in the Old Testament there was times when God's anger was kindled against Israel so much that he said, I'll wipe all of them off the face of this earth and I'll start over. And he could have done it 
and been justified in doing it because he's God. But he didn't. What is man that God would even try to save us? We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve any of that. Salvation is an humbling experience. It's an humbling process. When you realize and you admit that I may be, may be able to do a whole lot of things for myself, but what I cannot do is cleanse my own heart from sin. I can't do it. It's humbling to realize and to think that there was a God that gave his own life, his own blood as a ransom. I once read a quote that said, They that know God will be humble, and they that do know themselves cannot be proud. His light has a way of illuminating what's wrong in our life. I washed my car one time, actually recently, and the guy had a bottle of chemical that he sprayed on the wheels. It was blue. And you spray it all over the wheel and all over the rim. And it, it eats away at brake dust and all this kind of stuff. But the way that you knew it was working and where it was working was that it turned purple. It changed. My daughter used to go to a dentist. And, well, she, I mean, she does go to the dentist. She didn't used to go to the dentist, but she does go to the dentist. But this particular dentist, the first thing they did and put you in that chair is they rubbed this stuff all over your teeth. And where you were not brushing, it turned purple. And it highlighted all in your mouth. There was no way you could give an excuse that, oh, yeah, I've been brushing. It showed everywhere that you had not been brushing. It changed. You want to know how we know the Spirit of God is working in our heart? Change. You change. If you're not changing, then something's not working like it's supposed to be working. You measure growth not by age or IQ. You measure spiritual growth by change. That's why you have people been sitting on church pews for 40 years and they're spiritually immature. Not because they haven't heard, but because they haven't changed. Living for God is about we're conforming to fit this book. You don't change the book to fit you. You change to fit the book. You don't just take out bits and pieces. Your life has to match the book. And when you see how big God is, the, the, the natural response is you're going to see the things in your own life that are hindering your spiritual growth. People talk about, well, I just wish I could see God. I just wish I could have one of these experiences with God. I used to speak years ago. I, I, was, I was in this phase where I always wanted a word from God. I mean, I wanted somebody to come read my mail. I'd go to camp meetings. I'd go to conferences, and I'd see people give other people a word. And, and I, it was a phase I went through. One day I was praying about it, 
And I was just telling God, Lord, I want a word from you. I just want a word. And it's like the Lord just impressed upon my heart. And the thought came to my mind. Every time the preacher preaches, he's given me a word from God. Every time. Because if you want to know who God is, you read this book, This Is Who God Is. And you know the next service I went to, I actually listened to what the preacher said. And he was giving me a, almost a direct word from God that matched my situation. Because God knows what you need and when you need it. If we'll just listen, God will speak to us and navigate our life. In fact, I find it interesting that in, in the Hebrew culture, the rabbis in, that, in, in, in the Jewish culture, those that still practice, they, they first trained their children to read in the book of Leviticus. Now, if you ask me to go to one book in the Bible, I'm pretty confident I would not bring you to the book of Leviticus. But their reasoning behind it was because by finding out what God likes and dislikes is you find out who he is. And when, when that child would finish reading a page, they would put a drop of honey on that page. And their children, they would lick that drop of honey. And they were teaching them that God's word is sweeter than honey. It was their culture. Now, we like a whole lot of fluff. And we like all the feel-good stuff. But if we're going to live for God, we got to know what God likes and what God doesn't like. I can tell you real quick. In about 15 seconds, how to get out of hell. Stop doing what's wrong. Actually, that only took about two seconds. That's the easiest way to tell you how to make it to heaven and void hell. You do what's right, and you stop doing what's wrong. Now, it's easy to say it, and it's just a whole lot harder to do it. But when you get an upward vision, it's going to result in an inward vision and then that's going to produce an outward vision. He said in verse 9, And he said, Go and tell this people. He saw, him, he saw God. He saw himself. And then he saw the world. Three dimensions that we have to be renewed consistently. We've got to make sure we're seeing him. Then when we see him, we're going to see ourselves. That's where repentance comes in. Repentance is not a 30-second deal that you just do just to relieve your conscience. Repentance is a change of behavior and a change of direction. And when we repent, we repent, then we're going to see the world. He said, go. It's a word of commission. Co-mission. The mission is to save the world. But God needs us. That's why the co is there. Co-mission. God, God can do anything. But what he needs is people to help save people. The problem has never been getting them in the church. It's once they get in the church, it's getting them back out there to get other people to come back to church. Co-mission. We possess the most precious gift that one could ever have, which is the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. But Paul told, told the church in Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4 and 3, if our gospel be hid, 
It is hid to them that are lost. We're not hurting ourselves by hiding the gospel. We're hurting people that have never heard it. We already have heard it. But we need to get other people to hear the gospel. There's four dimensions. I spoke this to our leadership team, and I'll speak it to, to you, and I'll speak it again and again and again. There's four dimensions to man that the church has to be able to meet their needs. The spiritual, the physical, the relational, and the emotional. Four dimensions that the church, you know, we, we think that all there is to church is come sing and preach and hope that God puts them in the altar. There's a whole lot more to church than just that. When somebody comes to those doors and their life is in shambles, they don't need a theological exegesis on the Godhead as soon as they walk in the door. What they want to know is can you love me and can you help me? And this is a church that can love them and can help them. All that other stuff comes through time, through teaching. I believe in teaching. I believe in doctrine. But when they come through those doors, they're needing some love. They need to feel, or you can spell God. How do you spell God? You spell them L-O-V-E, love. God is love. You cannot separate love and God because they are one and the same. Just like you cannot separate truth and Jesus. They are one and the same. You cannot love God if you don't love people. This church is a loving church. And there's going to be people that are going to walk away from here and they're going to say, I've never felt more love than when I went to that church. It's not necessarily a church thing. It's a kingdom of God concept. It ought to be that way in any church that is a spirit-filled church. And, 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 and there's people in this church that you're going to, I firmly believe that one day you'll travel overseas and you'll touch people. There's people in this church, I firmly believe that you'll be a part of something on a global vision. See, you cannot, you cannot look globally without looking locally. But you can look locally without looking globally. God never called us to have just a local vision. He called us to have a global vision. You can look at your community and start looking up, and as you look, you see everything from local to global. We've got this concept. And I, I, I'm, I'm careful here. God never called us to be isolated. He called us to be separated. There's a difference. Isolation leaves you no open door to make contact with people that need God. But we can interact with people and still be separated apart unto God. God called us to be separated, not isolated. And as we go throughout our, our jobs and our schools, and you've got to remember, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Just like a fish, you can take him out of the water, but he is of the water. His source of life is the water. Or you can go swimming in water, but not be of the water. Means that that water is not what gives you life. The air that you breathe gives you life. 
So we can go out in the world, but we're not of the world. The, the world is not giving us our life. Christ is giving us our life. There's nothing wrong with interacting with people as long as you realize that that's not what gives you your purpose and identity. God gives you your purpose and your identity. Amen. I remember reading one time about William Booth he was walking in London with his son whose name was Bramwell. He was 12 or 13 years old. This particular day, this father surprised his son by taking him into a saloon. The place was crowded with men and women, many of them bearing on their faces the marks of vice and crime. Some were even drunk. The fumes of alcohol and tobacco were seemingly poisonous. Willie, Booth said to his son, these are our people. These are the people I want you to live for and bring to Christ. Years later, Bramwell Booth wrote, the impression never left me. What his dad was trying to show him is if Jesus spent his time interacting with publicans and sinners and people of the world. That was his heartbeat. Then we cannot isolate ourselves from people that need God. We, how can they come to Christ if our gospel is hid? It can't. Oh, you know, God can show them what they need. That's, that's true. That's true. God can't do anything. But normally God chooses to use people like he's already changed, changed your life and invested in you. That's what he did with the disciples. He invested in them. And then he sent them out into the world as sheep among wolves. He gave them what they needed. Do you realize that we have more resources at our disposal today than we have ever had. It's not a resource problem. It's not a resource problem. It's a willingness problem. You don't understand my personality, preacher. Listen to me. One thing that you'll never hear me do is ever beat up anybody for not doing something for the kingdom of God. I don't beat up nobody because I understand one person toils and, and, and breaks up the fallow ground. One person plants. One person waters. But ultimately, God gives the increase. We're not competing against anybody to see who can win the most people to God and who can get uh, the, 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 the star on their badge. We're not doing all that. Because I firmly believe the person that spends their time praying for souls is just as noteworthy as the person who actually grabbed their hand and brought them through the door because we all play a part in the salvation process. Everybody does. Everybody does. I, I remember Billy Cole telling, uh, telling his nephew, Brother Jack Cunningham, Brother Cunningham was telling a story that he was so upset that more people didn't get the Holy Ghost at a particular service, and Brother Cole rebuked him. And he said, don't blame yourself. Because if you'll blame yourself for them not getting it, you'll take the credit when they do get it. And it doesn't matter if anybody in this place 
lays hands on somebody and they receive the Holy Ghost, nobody gave that person the Holy Ghost except the Lord. Only God can fill somebody with the Holy Ghost. That's it. So everybody can do their part. This church, God has just been stirring my soul. I firmly believe, and you hear me, the day will come where Wallace Ridge will be known all over the world. I believe we're going to be a missions church. I believe that we're going to touch people on the other continents, all continents of this world. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And, and I, let me just say this. Next Sunday is the first Sunday of the month, which is always usually dedicated as Mission Sunday. And, 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 and I'm telling you this, so if you get a bad spirit, you can pray about it between now and next Sunday. But on, on Mission Sunday, just be prepared and pray about it. We're going to take up two offerings. We're going to take up our normal tithing offering, but then we're going to take up a missions offering. And if all you do is give 25 cents, 25 cents, If all you have is one penny, you can join in because it's about the vision. It's about people. It touched my heart. Yesterday I was unloading some stuff in my office, and we pulled into town about 2 o'clock, and I saw a truck pull in the, in the parking lot. And I don't know a lot of what people drive, but I recognize this truck. And out of that vehicle stepped a man named David Douglas and his wife, Julie Douglas, who was on his way back from hunting in his land north of Vicksburg. And they wanted to just swing by where the church was, and we just happened to be in the parking lot. And, and I stood out in that parking lot, and nearly tears nearly come to my eyes because these were the people that picked up my mom on a bus when she was dirt poor and didn't have anything. And all these years later, only God knew that one day her son would be pastoring a church in Wallace Ridge and that those people would pull up on the parking lot just to congratulate us. You see, you don't know what you do when you sow into people's lives. I'm talking about an outward vision. Just looking at the harvest and seeing how many people that we can impact. Stand with me all over. The old adage says you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Our job is not to make the horse drink. It's to make the horse thirsty. We can't make anybody come to an altar. You can fill up the whole pew full of people, but you can't make any of them say, I want to live for God. Can't do it. But what we can do as the body of Christ, is we can create such an environment and such a thirst in people's lives where they look at you and say, I want what you have. I need to drink what you've been drinking from. Everybody here, when we see him, then we're going to see ourselves. And when we see how big our need is for God, then we'll see all the other people that need the same thing that we have. Bow your heads with me as we close in prayer. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful for every single person here in this building. I'm thankful for their walk with God. 
I'm thankful, Lord, for their desire to be here with you. I'm thankful for their families. Lord, all we ask right now is that you would cleanse the lens that we've been viewing things. Help us to see you more clearly. Help us to see our need for you, which is always great. But Lord, help us always to see people that need God. Lord, we're going to play a huge part in reaching people around the globe. And as we reach people on the other side of the world, I firmly believe you're going to send people through these doors that we've been praying for, that we've been believing for. Lord, it's going to happen. We believe it in Jesus' name.